Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting October 18th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, journalist Robin Morantz Hennig talks about a new TV account of test tube babies. We'll look back at some technological history with an expert on old time radios. It's my dad. I'll talk about how some companies' names go overnight from help to hindrance, and we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Robin Morantz Hennig. She wrote Pandora's Baby, an article on the early days of test tube babies that appeared in Scientific American magazine in June 2003. Her book by the same name came out the next year. On Monday, October 23rd, PBS will air a documentary called Test Tube Babies, based in large part on her book and the Scientific American article, and she appears on the program. I called her at her home in Manhattan. Hi, Robin. How are you? Fine, Steve. How are you? I'm okay. Tell me about uh, this TV show that's going to be Monday night. It's an episode of American Experience, which is on PBS. Uh, they tell me 9 o'clock p.m. on most stations. And it's basically a video version of some of the stories I tell in Pandora's Baby about the early days of test tube fertilization research. And Pandora's Baby was the name both of your book and the article you did for Scientific American in June of 2003. Right. Talk about some of the the attitudes that prevailed when in, in vitro fertilization was a new thing. It's hard to put ourselves back in that mindset because we take in vitro fertilization so much for granted now. But in the 70s, people thought, first of all, that it was treading on, you know, unnatural territory. It was treading into God's terrain. Uh, and something that people shouldn't do. If if you weren't destined to have a baby, you should just sort of leave it at that. And second of all, even scientists who thought this was an okay thing to attempt thought that it was very likely that they were going to create monsters. I mean, how could you mess about with, with sperm and eggs in a Petri dish and not create some sort of chromosomal damage? So they were pretty sure that the first test tube baby was likely to be uh, some sort of a monster. And in fact, the first test tube baby turned out to be? She was fine. She was beautiful. She was perfect. This was Louise Brown, who was born in England in 1978. And much to many people's surprise, she was a perfectly normal, healthy baby. And she's now, what, about 28 years old? Yeah, about 28. And she, I think, just announced that she was um, getting married. What are some of the connections to what things were like then to how things are like today in some other controversial areas of biology. When, when I was listening to some of the concerns over um, things like embryonic stem cell research and uh, the possibility of human cloning, I was struck by how similar the objections were today to some of these innovations to what people were saying about in vitro fertilization in the 70s. Sometimes the very same words were used and sometimes the very same people were concerned about stem cell research, as those who were concerned about IVF. You're talking about Leon Cass in particular? I'm talking about Leon Cass in particular, but there were others as well. He was the most vocal at both points. He was very vocal back in the 70s complaining about IVF, and he was the head of the President's Council on Bioethics that came out with um, very um, negative reports on embryonic stem cell research. Right. Leon Cass also does not... Uh, approve of the public consumption of ice cream cones, but... Right, that means that we are just totally not in control of our animal urges if we're <laughs> eating ice cream on sidewalks. We're, we're serious uh, 
the listeners might think we're kidding around, but he has written against the uh, the act of licking ice cream in public as being a sort of subhuman mm-hmm. behavior. Um, you want to talk a little bit about how the the political pressures on IVF wound up ironically making it unregulated and what that led to? Because people were so afraid of of um, using federal funds to sponsor the kind of research that a certain subset of the population would find objectionable, the government basically abrogated all responsibility in IVF research. They they basically said, we're not going to use federal funds to support any research involving human embryos and fetuses. Uh, so what resulted from that was that IVF still continued to be um, investigated, but it became kind of a cowboy science. It was something that was funded by private people who were funding, you know, just sort of the marketplace of fertility clinics, and there was no regulation. If there had been federal funds for for research grants, then there would have been certain restrictions on federal funding and also would have been uh, an opportunity for the scientists to actually talk to each other. You know, when people get um, NIH grants, they often have conferences and they have, you know, some sort of public forum in which they describe some of the things they've been learning. But this put everything sort of under the radar and back into the private marketplace, which was not necessarily good for this kind of research. And in more recent years, some actual conditions related to IVF have been uncovered through an analysis of all the data, right? Right. At first, they thought, well, at, at first, before any babies were born, they thought that they might really be causing some damage. Then once the, the first bunch of healthy babies were born, um, they very quickly changed their opinion and thought, well, this is just like um, regular conception, but just taking place someplace else. Because basically, you, you fertilize the egg in the Petri dish, but you put it back in the uterus to grow, and everything else happens naturally. Um, and recently, they've discovered, by looking more carefully at some of the results of IVF, they've discovered that there is actually a, an increase in some birth defects, mostly rare birth defects, and it's still mostly um, a small percentage. And many of them are also associated with the fact that IVF babies tend are much more likely to be multiples rather than singletons, much more likely to be twins and triplets. And there are birth defects associated with that situation also. Right. One of the unintended uh, consequences of all this IVF, I think, is a, a big rise in the sales of multiple baby strollers. <laughs> you just well, it, see it goes, them everywhere. It goes both ways because um, older mothers also are more likely to have twins uh, uh, just naturally. So, so there, yes, there are. I live on the Upper West Side of New York. There are twin strollers all over the place here. And a fair amount of triplet strollers as well. Yeah, that, and that starts to get pretty scary. Uh, and you're, you're one of the talking heads on the television program, right? Yes, and some of the uh, other talking heads are some of the people who were in my book. Um, Landrum Shettles, who made the first attempt at an American test tube baby. Um, John Delzio and Doris Delzio, who were the couple who tried to have the first American test tube baby. Um, Howard Jones, who actually created the first American test tube baby in 1981, after Louise Brown was born. The Delzio case is really, really interesting. They made an attempt in 1973, which was very early in this 
in the development of the science to have IVF done on them in New York City. And when the boss of the scientist, Landrum Shettles, who was trying to do it, found out about it, he pulled the test tube out of the incubator where it was supposedly, um, you know, growing and stopped the experiment because he thought it was premature. And then the Delzios took the boss to court. They said that he had destroyed their property. What are you working on right now? Any new books? Uh, I'm not doing any new books. I'm doing a lot of articles for the New York Times Magazine. Uh, and the one that I'm working on now is about God, the evolutionary and scientific explanation for why God exists. Oh, what a fascinating question. Yeah. yeah. Without getting into the interminable and kind of pointless debate over whether God exists, I think that it's incumbent upon science, if one is to really adopt a methodological, naturalistic point of view, to attempt to formulate a an explanation for the belief in God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm writing about. Tremendous. Right. Can't wait to read it. Robin Morantz-Hennig, thanks very much. Thank you, Steve. Test Tube Babies is on PBS's American Experience, Monday night, October 23rd, in most places at 9 p.m. Robin Morantz Hennig's June 2003 Scientific American article, Pandora's Baby, is available at our digital archive, www.siamdigital.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, radioactive snails have been discovered in southeastern Spain. Story two, Poland's deputy education minister wants to stop the teaching of evolution in that country. Story three, the British medical journal The Lancet estimates some 655,000 Iraqis have died since the beginning of the war. President Bush agrees with that figure. And story four, adding extract of rosemary to the polypropylene packaging for meat keeps the meat looking pink and fresh longer than meat treated the usual way with carbon monoxide. We'll be back with the answer, but first, you kids today with your iPod Nunos and your PCP players, you're used to radios that can fit in your pocket or right in your ear even. But the early days of big-time commercial radio came before transistors and radios were huge. And they had some other interesting features. Here's how my dad remembers radios almost 80 years ago. Tell me about the first radio your father brought home. I must have been about six and my dad brought home a Zenith radio, which was a cabinet about three foot by three foot on legs. And inasmuch in those days, I'm talking about 1928, they didn't have receptacles in the walls to plug your uh, appliances in. The radio played off an automobile battery that was placed on the floor behind the radio. A big 12-volt car battery. Right. Did you have electricity in the apartment? I think one bulb, maybe, in each room. But that's about all. It was like hanging with a bulb attached. Nothing, no fancy chandeliers or anything like that. And... uh, What I remember mostly about it is that after a while, the battery acid would burn the wooden floor and it would have to be replaced until somebody came up with the brainstorm of having a metal pan that it would sit into and and the damage was uh, uh, very little in comparison. 
So when you would buy a radio back then, you'd also buy a metal pan to put the battery in so that when it leaked, it wouldn't destroy your floor. That's correct. (laughs) I also remember this particular Zenith had a little door on the right side, and there were buttons that you pressed down, like on a typewriter, and that changed the stations for you. And... Your father was a carpenter, and you were a carpenter. And when when you started to go out on jobs with your father, you were still a boy. I started to go out on jobs with my father when I was probably 10, 11 years old. And one of the most common things you did was repair the floors that had been damaged by the radio batteries? Yes, <laughs> that's true. But uh, by the time I was 14... I was uh, skillful enough to hang French doors in apartments. So you no longer had to fix the battery-destroyed floors. That's right, because they had uh, long wires with uh, uh, receptacles uh, screwed onto the baseboard. By then, people were actually plugging the radios in. right. Well, thanks, Dad. (laughs) You're welcome. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, radioactive snails in Spain. Story two, Poland's deputy education minister wants to get rid of evolution training. Story three, Lancet study estimates 655,000 Iraqi dead. President Bush agrees. Story four, rosemary packaging keeps meat in the pink. Time's up. Story one is true. Radioactive snails were found in Spain near where three U.S. H-bombs accidentally fell 40 years ago. The bombs didn't go off, but igniters did blow on impact, spreading some radiation. Looks like more cleanup is still necessary. Radioactive snails, walk! Walk for your lives! Story two is true. Polish Deputy Education Minister Miroslav Orzechowski wants evolution out of schools. He said the theory of evolution is a lie and a feeble idea. He went on to explain that Darwin came up with evolution, quote, perhaps because he was a vegetarian and lacked fire inside him, end quote. See, now, that's the kind of solid scientific reasoning you want to teach kids. And excellent scholarship, by the way, because according to Darwin biographer James Moore, Darwin was not a vegetarian. Better to be taught Darwin than to be taught by Miroslav Orzechowski. And story four is true. Packaging incorporated rosemary extract, kept meat rosy longer than meat treated the usual way with carbon monoxide. The research was reported in September in the Journal of Agriculture and Food Chemistry. Perhaps the beef industry will stop being so CO-dependent. All of which means that story three about the Lancet study and President Bush agreeing about the numbers of Iraqi deaths is totally bogus. Because the prestigious medical journal published a study that estimated 655,000 Iraqi dead since the war began. The study used commonly accepted methodology involving canvassing a couple of thousand homes and extrapolating total numbers. President Bush, on the other hand, estimates the number of civilian dead at more like 30,000. He got that number from, well, he didn't say. That low number that he cited was once again 30,000 civilian Iraqi deaths. As another heir to a throne once said, oh heavens, died two months ago and not forgotten yet? Then there's hope a great man's memory may outlive his life half a year. That story didn't end so great either. Speaking of evolution, now I want to tell you the YouTube story. YouTube was in the news a lot in the last week or so because of the sale to Google for $1.65 billion. 
Turns out there was a company in Toledo called Universal Tube and Roll Form Equipment Corporation. Now, this company made actual tubes, and their website was youtube.com, spelled U-T-U-B-E.com. Of course, YouTube, the incredibly popular video file sharing site, is Y-O-U-T-U-B. Now, the other YouTube, the one that was there first, the one that for the company that actually makes tubes, had its website completely overwhelmed by people looking for the YouTube where you share your files. The uh, the website had to be shut down because it just couldn't handle the uh, the amount of traffic that it was getting, and uh, they're having all kinds of problems over at that company. Now, it reminded me of a, of a situation that was even worse, actually, that maybe a lot of the younger listeners might not have uh, heard of. But back in the 1970s and 1980s, there was an appetite suppressant chocolate candy. also came in a couple of other flavors, actually, but the most popular one was chocolate. And it was uh, designed to lose, to help you lose weight. It was called AIDS, A-Y-D-S. And here's an actual commercial from probably about 1982 for AIDS, the appetite suppressant candy. I was overweight and embarrassed to go anyplace. AIDS helped me get back into a size 12. The AIDS diet plan helped me get back into a size 6. AIDS helps control your appetite so you lose weight. Yet AIDS lets you taste, chew, and enjoy. And the appetite suppressant in AIDS is not a stimulant. AIDS helped me lose the weight and has nothing in it that could make me nervous. Question, why take diet pills when you can enjoy AIDS? AIDS helps you lose weight safely and effectively. Use only as directed. Now, once AIDS, the disease, really became well-known, AIDS, the diet candy, uh, went out of business completely. And uh, there's, a, there's an evolution lesson here because an adaptation like your brand name that appears under a given set of environmental circumstances to be worthwhile can suddenly and overnight become lethal. So uh, one has to be flexible and develop new adaptations and quickly in order to survive. And uh, we hope the folks at YouTube, the tube-making company, Universal Tube and Roll Form Equipment Corp., uh, somehow find a way out of the mess that they're in now. A couple of notes. Our baseball mathematician from last week, Bruce Bouquet, gave the Tigers the nod over the A's, and they did indeed win their series. He picked the Mets over the Cardinals. That series is tied at two games each as we go to press. Also, just to remind you of our other multimedia offerings, Science Video News is now available on our website, www.siam.com. Check it out and give a listen to the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, at the website and at iTunes. For good old-fashioned reading, you can always check out Scientific American Magazine and the rest of the website and the blog, which is at blog.siam.com. And if you want to write instead of read, you can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Leave off the second S. That's the S for science. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.